Hello and welcome to the podcast edition of Scripps 5 Must Know Things. This episode for the Business Week ended 5th November 2021. This is Ian Haydock. This time, Pfizer's mixed Q3, delayed US approval for Janssen Legends CAR-T, promising new data in RSV, Dr. Reddy's lays out more COVID product plans, and experts dissect decentralized trials. While Pfizer continues to reap huge revenues from its BioNTech-partnered COVID-19 vaccine Comirnaty, prompting another increase in sales guidance, without that windfall the company's third quarter performance was muted, with some key product lines showing weakness. The company highlighted pipeline programs that could be the next set of growth drivers, albeit with some speed bumps in its gene therapy programs. Alaric Diamond writes that the US giant reported revenues of $24.1 billion, a 130% increase over the comparable period of 2020. Of that figure, $13 billion came from sales of Comirnaty, but even when excluding the mRNA vaccine, revenues saw a 7% increase. The company expects the vaccine to have sales of $36 billion in 2021, compared with the $33.5 billion it forecast when releasing its second quarter earnings. Comirnaty revenues in 2022 are expected to be $29 billion. The earnings announcement closely follows the US FDA's decision on 29 October to grant emergency use authorization to Comirnaty for use in children aged 5 to 11. The vaccine has had an EUA for ages 12 to 15 since May. Pfizer and BioNTech also plan to seek full FDA approval for a third booster shot of Comirnaty, currently administered to high-risk populations under an EUA. The additional EUAs have translated into increased market share for Pfizer-BioNTech. Pfizer CEO Albert Baller told the earnings call that in the US, the four-week average market share for Comirnaty increased from about 56% in April to 74% as of 31st October. The market share increases are primarily the result of our booster being the first to receive emergency use authorization and our two-dose series being preferred by some countries around the world for use in certain younger populations, Buller said. Beyond the vaccine, Pfizer also reported progress on its development of COVID-19 therapeutics, intravenous and oral protease inhibitors that it's testing in phase 2-3 studies. In September, the company initiated the EPIC-PEP study of the oral drug PF0732-1332, co-administered with low-dose ritonavir as post-exposure prophylaxis among participants sharing households with infected people. Janssen and Legend Biotech will have to wait an extra three months for a US FDA approval decision on their CAR-T therapy Siltacel. But given the manufacturing challenges facing first-to-market product Abecma, there may be pent-up demand for another BCMA-targeting CAR-T product by the time Siltacel reaches the market for multiple myeloma. Mandy Jackson writes that Janssen and Legend announced on 1st November that the FDA has moved the action date for the Siltacel biologic license application for treatment of relapsed or refractory multiple myeloma from 29th November to 28th February next year. The partners said the agency extended the date to allow more time to review information recently submitted by Janssen pertaining to an updated analytical method in response to an FDA information request. Abecma from Bristol-Myers Squibb and Bluebird Bio won approval as a fifth-line myeloma treatment on 26 March and the product was launched in mid-May. 
The sill-to-sell approval delay gives Abecma another three months without a competing BCMA targeting CAR-T, but BMS has limited capacity to take advantage of the extra time. Executives noted during the Big Pharma's recent Q3 earnings call that demand for Abecma is outpacing manufacturing capacity. More specifically, the industry-wide shortage of viral vectors used to deliver cell and gene therapies has capped the number of Abecma doses that BMS can make available. Even with the approval delay for Sil to Cell, the Janssen and Legend product may be able to take advantage of unmet demand for Abecma if the companies are able to access viral vectors for manufacturing. BMS Bluebird and Janssen Legend have significant leads over several competing autologous and allogeneic BCMA targeting CAR-Ts coming up behind them. But competition also is emerging from bispecific antibodies targeting BCMA, including one from Janssen. Legend CEO Ying Huang said in a statement about the cell-to-cell approval delay that the company is working with Janssen and the FDA to facilitate an efficient and thorough BLA review so that the CAR-T therapy will be available to multiple myeloma patients as soon as possible. Janssen said no additional clinical data have been requested, but the company is also working with the FDA on the BLA review. Pfizer has released data from its maternal respiratory syncytial virus vaccine candidate, which suggests strong efficacy and could see it take a bigger-than-expected slice of a soon-to-be multi-billion dollar market. An abstract from a Phase 2b study being presented at the RSV Vaccines for the World Conference, being held on 10th to 11th November, marks the first efficacy data from Pfizer's RSV Pre-F vaccine, and shows it to reach 85% efficacy protection against RSV infection or hospitalisation for infants born to vaccinated mothers. Andrew McConaughey writes that rate of protection is better than the 75% achieved by Sanofi and AstraZeneca's Nersevimab, an antibody-based prophylactic that is given directly to infants in the pivotal Phase 3 Melody study earlier this year. While cross-trial comparisons are problematic, The results are still eyebrow-raising as the maternal vaccination approach used by Pfizer has failed on numerous earlier occasions, including in a Novavax study which read out in 2019. Vaccination of a pregnant mother requires a very high level of immunogenicity. Enough of the mother's antibodies must pass through the placenta and remain in the child to provide immune protection in the infant for up to 12 months after birth. Novavax's failure convinced many observers that the approach was a dead end, but Pfizer's positive results have revived interest. Also being presented at the Congress are immunogenicity data from RSV Pre-F and a Phase 2 study of another maternal vaccine contender, GSK's RSV Pre-F3. Both vaccines induced more than tenfold increases in RSVA B neutralising antibodies in vaccinated mothers, well above the two- to three-fold increases reported in the Novavax study. Supply inconsistencies may have dulled Russian COVID-19 vaccine Sputnik V's early run in India, but partner Dr Reddy's Laboratories is working on a three-forked approach to tap new opportunities for the immunisation shot, including plans for booster and paediatric doses. Andrew Gangurdi writes that Dr. Reddiz has finalised the protocol for the vaccine as a booster dose and is in discussions with regulators for initiating trials in India and also expects to progress Sputnik for two cohorts of children, 
12 to 18 and 2 to 12 years of age as part of life cycle management efforts. The reason this is important to segregate into these two age groups is that the dosing requirements for the two categories are likely to be different and that's how we are planning to conduct our trial and the protocol is being designed accordingly. Dr. Reddy's CEO for Active Pharmaceutical Ingredients and Services, Deepak Sapra, said at a media briefing on the results for the Indian firm's fiscal second quarter ended 30th September. Sapra indicated that the company is looking at Sputnik Light, a two-dose regimen for its paediatric vaccination plan. It's an important activity for us because we believe that a one-dose vaccine could be easier to programme manage in a country of the complexity of India and we'll be able to provide faster and quicker coverage to the paediatric population, the executive explained. Sputnik Light is essentially the first-dose component of Sputnik V, which uses two different vectors for the two shots in a course of vaccination. In April this year, India approved Sputnik V for restricted use in an emergency situation. Dr. Reddys is also upbeat about potential opportunities for molnupiravir, Merkinco and Ridgeback Biotherapeutics antiviral, for which it's a licensee among several other Indian firms. CEO Israeli said that while the company has high expectations for the product, with COVID-19, no one knows what will happen. So we are preparing ourselves for a big opportunity and let's see what will happen because it depends not just on the regulatory approval but also on how the pandemic will evolve in the next few months and quarters. Interestingly, the company also clarified that there's a slight difference in the definition of mild to moderate COVID-19 in India versus in some other parts of the world. Sapra explained that the mild to moderate category in the US is actually the mild category in India noting that the objective of molupiravir is to prevent hospitalisation and therefore serve as a credible treatment option for patients who are COVID-19 positive but are staying at home. Finally, the pharma industry has been quick to embrace decentralised trials as a lasting change, de-risked by the pandemic and are reporting positive effects and cost savings. But during a recent panel at the Gallian Foundation Forum, an important voice, former and possibly future US FDA Commissioner Robert Califf, urged some caution about moving too fast. During a 28th October panel discussion on how decentralised clinical trials, or DCTs, are modernising clinical research, industry experts reflected on the changes that have taken place to accommodate these new types of trials that use virtual and digital technologies and approaches. While it's now well established that the pandemic accelerated adoption of DCTs, there's still much to be worked out about how to incorporate new methods into the research system. Alaric Diamant writes that Medible CEO Michelle Longmire pointed out that DCTs are really opening up new possibilities, especially in rare diseases, due to their ability to ease participation in clinical trials drawing on her experience at Stanford University doing research in the rare disease systemic sclerosis. While DCTs were embraced as a way to facilitate research during COVID-19, industry sponsors, researchers and regulators are seeing advantages such as offering more flexibility in terms of sites and site visits to open up access that are carrying the model past the pandemic to find a place in the clinical research landscape. Regulatory agencies have rushed to meet the growing interest in DCTs with guidance, accepting that fully virtual or hybrid trials are a permanent feature of clinical research. 
The US FDA provided some instruction through its pandemic research policies and is working on a guidance on DCTs and use of digital health technology for remote data acquisition. The research services industry has also been changing in response with new players and new investments. Illustrating the growth in decentralized and hybrid trials, DCT technology provider Science37 raised $235 million in a merger with a special purpose acquisition company and a concurrent financing in early October. Panelists at the Galleon meeting, Andy Plump, who's president of R&D at Takeda, said that while the randomised control trial was one of the great inventions, really, of the 20th century, the approach to it hasn't changed much, and it's brutal for physicians and scientists. It's inefficient, it's expensive, it's hard to find patients, and it's getting worse, getting more expensive and slower, he said. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. All the full stories mentioned here are linked in the article accompanying this podcast and form just a fraction of all the content published in Scrip over the past week. Sign in to access the stories in full or take a free trial to see what you're missing. Also a note that the annual Scrip Asia 100 supplement has just been published with data and insights for the APAC region, which is linked under the Outlook 2021 section of the Scrip website. Bye for now.